Scripture reading this evening will be read from Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17. Romans 8, 14 through 17. For as many as you are led by the Spirit of God, those are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage, again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. It's hard to believe we're only getting down to verse 17, and this is the fifth sermon of this particular chapter. Romans chapter 8 um, is quite a rich chapter. What we're trying to dive into is the thought that Christianity is not just a changed, modified, or different life, but Christianity in its essence is supposed to be a new life, a brand new life. In every section we are looking at um, the way that this new life really becomes reality for us. And the way that you and I as Christians will ever experience what the Bible calls having a new life is not waiting for some magical combustion to happen inside of our hearts and then we feel all um, special and the you know, fairy dust kind of falls on us, but rather us, you and I, understanding the new objective realities that were purchased by Jesus Christ through his death, burial, and resurrection. And when we understand those realities that now exist here in this world and the world to come, when we understand those realities and respond to them, we then become new people. There's a whole new world that's been bought by Jesus Christ that you and I are now to live in in hopes of one day becoming the absolute world that we live in with regards to being with God. So now, tonight what we're going to talk about is probably a subject that's as near to my heart as there is in the scripture right now in my time, um, mainly because scripture spends a lot of time about this subject, but also um, a lot of the hours of my work in ministry are spent on this very subject, so I feel very close and passionate about it. We're going to talk about the fact that we have now in Jesus Christ a new status, a new status. And the idea of status is kind of a funny thing. It's all around us. Um, it's everywhere. Status, the word just simply means where we stand or, or where we stand in relation to others. And you see status everywhere. We have work status. What's your status at work? Are you full-time employed, part-time employed? Um, what level are you in relation to other people? What's your status? We have relationship statuses, right? We can be married or not married. We can be single or dating. There's a lot of statuses that are in relationships. But the one that probably captures most of our attention, uh, mainly in our culture a lot, is our social status. Our social status. That's captured us in a lot of ways that we probably don't even recognize. In fact, uh, social status is this area in psychology and sociology that people are diving into headfirst to research to understand how social status plays into every part of our life. In fact, they're finding that um, uh, you know people their social status determines has a lot to do with the access they have to health care. Social status has a lot to do with how we rise in our professions, and social status is what drives a lot of our consumption or buying. You heard of the phrase status symbol, right? Anybody heard that phrase? 
I love that old uh, Dave Ramsey. I think Dave Ramsey is one that said this. I don't know. Um, a lot of variations, but we buy things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't like. You, ever that? you guys are too close to home. Sorry. <laughs> you guys, that was like a nervous chuckle. Todd's looking at me a little scared here. <laughs> He's like, oh, I got to sell my car now. <laughs> Just teasing Todd. But what's interesting about status is, you know, you only care. You only care about your status with those that you care about. Right? Think about, there might be a group of people in this world that you just don't care about, and you probably have little regard for your status with them. And what's really sad about human beings in a broken and sinful world is we oftentimes, we, we only care about our status with those that we care about, and oftentimes it's not even with those who actually care about us. Right? Are you, are you following me? Did the logic follow? We only care about our status with people we care about, what they think of us. And then on top of that, oftentimes it's only with people who don't really even care about us. Status. Status is a powerful thing. For those of you who are now Christians, though, here's what comes into our world. The awareness that comes into our world is that there is a supreme being who is our creator and sovereign Lord who rules over all. And to come into Jesus Christ is to recognize the supremacy of God and the supremacy of Jesus. And so now what happens in Christianity is you have an all new status that you've got to think about. You've got to wonder about where do I stand with God? And the Bible presents that in Jesus Christ we have a new status. He doesn't just say that we are people who are saved. Well, that's true. He doesn't just say that we get to be citizens of his kingdom, although that's true. The Bible reveals that you and I are actually children of the king. That's our status. It's probably hard, a little bit hard for us to uh, be connected to this idea because we don't live under a monarchy here in, in our culture. But to, to be a child of the king in this time, in this day and age, would catapult you to the highest realm of social status in that culture. It would be like us being associated with maybe a super rich, super influential family in this culture. Maybe like the Kennedys or the Vanderbilts or some famous name like that, right? Where, yeah, that's my family. That's my status. And I'm, I'm a child of that family. It, it, that's what it really was getting down to. And you and I are a child of the king of the world. And this status is Satan's most active place at work in deceiving Christians. It's the one area that he wants to deceive you into thinking that's not true. Do you remember when the prodigal son woke up in the pig pen and he came to himself, the Bible says, and he was walking home? He was rehearsing two lines, two, two things he was going to tell his father. Do you remember those two lines? The first line is, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. And the second line was what? Do you remember? Mike's got it. I'm not worthy to be your child. Make me one of your hired servants. What he was saying was, my status to you, father, no longer can be a son, but I'll go ahead and be a worker for you. And the, and the younger son coming home was willing to just live in the servant's quarters and relate to the father as an employee. 
You can see me on work hours. I'll perform duties for you. And when I perform those duties for you, you'll be pleased with me if I do them well. But then I'll retreat back to the servant's quarters where you don't have to see me anymore. And upon arriving to his father, when his father runs out and meets him, the son only gets to say one of those two lines. Do you remember which one? Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. And when he gets ready to say, I can't be your son anymore. The father stops him, puts the ring on his finger, the robe around his uh, body, and he has the fatted calf killed. And he celebrates that his son is back. Now, here's the question. How many of you relate to God like a child, like his son or daughter of the king? Or how many of us are walking up that road continuing to experience our relationship with God as, yes, I know I've sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I will operate as just one of the hired servants. On your time, God, time that, you know, we count on the clock, I'll be here and I'll do what you ask me to do, but I'll just retreat back away from you to continue to live. You see, I think Satan is active and busy in deceiving us with regards to our status. This is probably one of the most frequent questions that I address in ministry and that scripture addresses is, how do you know you're a child of God? And how do you know you're a daughter or son of the king? How do you know that? And how do you have the assurance of that? That's what this text is all about. And the good news for us is that there is some proof for that. There's three things in this text you're going to see. Um, I recognize that I don't have the time to teach you all three well, so I'm going to spend most of my time on the first one. Okay, Um, we're going to see the proof of our status with God. That's verses 14 through 16. I won't be able to teach you the first part of 17, which is the promise of our status, that we are heirs of God and heirs with Jesus Christ. We are heirs. We're going to talk about that in our next lesson, the hope that's coming in Jesus Christ that we have now, this new hope. So I won't spend time talking about how we are heirs of God and heirs with Christ. And the third one is we're going to see the pathway. This is the second part of 17, the pathway to assurance that we are God's children. Let's get into verses 14 through 16. That's probably all the farther we'll get tonight. And then, um, but in my opinion, it's probably the most important thing that we need to deal with, the evidence or the proof that we are children of God. What evidence is there, really? If someone were to ask you right now, how do you know you're a child of God? You say you're a Christian, that's great. Are you a citizen of the kingdom? Are you a servant of the master? How do you know you're a child of God? What evidence is there? When verses 14 through 16, what's really interesting is that Paul lays out for you, uh, he reveals to you a diagnosis, so to speak. Every verb in verses 14 through 16 is in what's known as the imperative, or I'm sorry, I'm sorry, indicative voice. Now, the voice of a a verb being indicative means it's showing you what is real, not telling you what to do. Imperatives are, here's what you must do, here's what you must do, here's what you must do. Imperatives are, or indicatives are, here's what it is. Here's the reality. And he's showing you a diagnosis. And here's the diagnosis. These objective realities that tell us that we are children of God have to be first understood and then become experienced so that we can have assurance. How do you know you're a child of God? Look in verse 14. He says it simply this way. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons, sons and daughters of God. 
Now, that's a pretty simple sentence, right? If you just stop there and break that down, if you're an English teacher, maybe you diagram that sentence and you look at it and you say, okay, people who are led by the Spirit are God's children. Sound good? Everybody good with that statement? How do you know you're led by the Spirit? How's that statement? Now, that's pretty difficult, isn't it? That's pretty vague. The statement led by the Spirit is pretty vague, and um, it gets mixed up oftentimes, right? Would you be able to stand confidently to know, yes, I am a person who is led by the Spirit of God. I know that the Spirit of God is leading me. I I know the number of people I talk to, and then the person I talk to the most, me, is not always sure of this. It's it's a difficult thing to be confident in. Would you agree to being led by the Spirit? So what does this mean? Does this mean that God tells you which road to take when you're driving tomorrow, led by the Spirit? Does it mean that God tells you which job to take, job A or job B? Does it mean that God tells you which person to marry, which school to go to? What does this mean? It's sort of detached, right? Well, the good thing about Scripture is that it's actually not detached. Verse 14 starts with the word for, or therefore, which means it's connected to the verse before. And here's where you can see the evidence of what it means to be led by God's Spirit. Look in verse 13. Here's how you know you're led by God's Spirit. He says, For if you live according to the flesh, verse 13, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So what is the leading of the Spirit? Do you see in verse 13? The leading of the Spirit is putting to death the sins or the deeds of the body. That's what he's talking about. So here's the evidence. I know I've taken a long time to get to this, but here's what it is. When the Spirit of God is leading you into war against your sin, that is evidence that you are God's child. Now here's where this gets tricky. It is this very experience, awareness of sin, disdain for sin, knowing you need to defeat sin, feeling afraid of sin. It's that very experience that so often confuses Christians that makes them say, maybe I'm not a Christian. Maybe I'm not God's child. That is the experience that is most often used by Satan to cause doubt. See, when you and I become aware of our sin, Satan immediately whispers to us, you must not really be a Christian. What's all this sin in your life for? The moment we have sin, he begins to say things like, uh, if you were really God's child, God's, God's children, they don't think like that. They don't act like that. They don't have attitudes like that. So you must not really be God's child. And in the awareness of sin, the conviction of sin, so many Christians are railroaded by Satan to be convinced in that moment, I'm aware of my sin. I don't like it. I must not be a Christian. How brilliant of Satan, right? Pretty smart move. The very thing that's supposed to be evidence that God's spirit is leading you has become the tactic of Satan to convince people that they're not God's children. The awareness of sin and being led into fighting against your sin is the very evidence that that Paul says that you are a child of God. When you become aware of your sin, even in your godly sorrow, you and I should not lose hope that we are God's child. Rather, we should let that awareness confirm it. 
But upon that confirmation, we've got to move to the next stage of maturity that Paul talks about here. Because in response to the war on sin, the awareness of our sin, here's the next thing that confirms to us that we are God's children. Here's how we're going to have our status assured in us. Look what he says at the end of, or in verse 14. Uh, those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. So once you become aware of sin and you're in that moment where you can decide if this is either evidence that you're God's child or be tossed by Satan, you and I are need to replace fear with the fatherhood of God. You see, war is a scary thing. Um, people that I have spoken to who have been in war, um, you know, books that I've read, um, movies that I've watched, it all seems to hover around this idea that war is an incredibly scary thing. And war on your sin, awareness of it, and knowing that you need to battle against it is an incredibly scary thing. It can be traumatizing. And so once sin becomes aware to us, once we become aware of our sin, let me say it this way, so often we are scared of the awareness of that sin that we just find ways to cope. We distract ourselves with good works. We make promises to God. We, we numb ourselves with busyness because we don't like to know the depths of our sinfulness. And so we numb ourselves to that. But so often Christians get stuck in that cycle. Awareness of sin, fear, oh my goodness, I can't believe this is real about me. And then we numb that fear by either overabundance of good works or an overabundance of promises to God that will improve in the future. That's what we do with it. There's a better way for us to move forward. There's a better way, one that will confirm deeper that we are actually God's children. When you become aware of your sin, which is a gift of God to lead us into righteousness, and godly sorrow comes upon you, remind yourself, fight against Satan, that God is your father who has adopted you, not your master who is demanding you of a slave in that moment. When you become aware of sin and you're afraid in that moment, oh my goodness, I can't believe this is real about me. I want this to change. What Satan wants to divert you into is fear, mastery, slavery. And what God is saying is, no, 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 listen, I've adopted you. I've adopted you. Now, why would Paul choose to use the word adoption in this moment? Why do you think? Because we actually see in John chapter 3, how does Jesus use us coming into the family of God? Is it adoption? He says it's a new what? Come on, you got to wake up. Come. A new birth, a new creation, right? But why would Paul use adoption here? What's so special about adoption? What's so special about adoption is this. That the parents go and find that child and say, I'll accept you. I want you come into my family. In spite of the baggage that comes with you, in spite of the difficulties that may arise, we are of our own choice choosing this one to be our child. Now that's important because as we talk about being led by the Spirit into war against our sin, and when our sin comes to the surface, our status as God's children gets challenged in our mind. And in that moment, Paul is saying, listen, remember, it is adoption by which you come into God's family. God has chosen, warts and all, for you to be His. For you to be His. You have got to fight the fear of the reality of your sin with the fatherhood of God. 
that he has chosen to love you, that he's chosen to make you his. We've got to ask ourselves, how do we relate to God? The beauty of adoption is that it emphasizes God's pursuit of you. But the challenge of adoption is this, that there's always an opportunity for there to be space in our minds that God might not want us. That's the fear. And for you and I to break this cycle, we've got to fight Satan's spin that makes us a slave with the truth that we are God's children. And the sensitivity of your sin is evidence of this. This is when, when sin comes up in your life and you're aware of it and you're afraid and you want to know how to handle it, in that first moment, you've got to know how to preach the gospel to yourself. One of the most powerful tools you ever learn is how to preach the gospel to yourself every day. To recognize when you are drifting into license and disregarding God's grace or drifting into legalism and trying to overwork for God's approval. You've got to recognize that and be able to preach the gospel to yourself. So when sin comes to the surface and in that moment you're afraid and you remind yourself of the fatherhood of God, you've got to preach the gospel, which is Romans chapter 5 verse 8. Even when we were sinners, Christ died for us. So Christ died for you knowing your sin. And then when the tenderness of God's fatherly love finally becomes real, yes, even in your sin, when you start to understand that God doesn't hate you, he hates the sin in you and loves you so much that he wants to drive that out of you, that he wants nothing more than to help you and love you and care for you. Then you'll move to the final stage here as you notice the third part in verse So for verse 14, for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. So led into war against our sin is the evidence that we're God's children. Upon awareness of our sin, we've got to choose fatherhood of God over fear. And when we do this, you'll see, you notice what he says at the end here, by whom we received uh, the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. We've got to move to the third stage, which is the cry of dependence. There's one thing your honest war on sin will teach you when you begin to really engage your sin and try to defeat it is that you cannot do it alone, that you do not have in your own strength, will and power the ability to defeat sin without God. You can't do it. Anyone who is honest about not just the behaviors of sin, but the roots of their sin, the deep motivations of their sin, when they try to tackle those things apart from God, will know that they'll be defeated. Sin is powerful. Sin is crushing. And sin's roots are deep in the human heart. That's why Hebrew writer says that we have to get rid of the sin which so easily entangles us. I'm sure most of you in here could probably recognize, maybe not the whole list, but two or three things that just kind of hang close to you that are difficult to uproot out of the human heart. They're different for each of us. And here's what um, Paul says that we need to do. When we're aware of our sin, we choose fatherhood over fear. And in that choosing of fatherhood, we learn to cry in dependence, not shriek in independence. See, that word cry is actually the same word that is used when Jesus was on the cross when he said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. He screeched with a loud voice. He cried out. This is one that you would do when you have no other options. This is the cry, not the whimper, not the like bottom lip sticking out, quivering. I hope somebody will bail me out. This is the scream that I have no other option. And it's probably like for most of you in here like me, been a while since you've done that. It doesn't happen very often when you become, you know, you kind of grow up and you become independent, you become an adult. 
We don't cry often. Cry out like this. But what you do when you know you can't fix it, but you believe your father can, is what this thing is called crying. When you know you can't fix something, and it's literally out of your control to fix, and you need somebody to help, that's what we do when we cry. Now, who do we cry to? Paul does something very strange here. He inserts an Aramaic word. You've probably heard some uh, explanation on this before, but Abba is an Aramaic word. It's kind of random. He's writing in the Greek, the Koine Greek, and he just inserts uh, the, the language of Palestine, Aramaic, Abba. And then he goes back into Greek and says, Father. Um, it's interesting, you know, a lot of people really try to dig into why he did this. What we know about this word is that it's actually a universal language. Abba is like uh, our little children here saying mama or dada, right? This is the universal language of dependent children who reach up and begin to speak. You know, those of you parents in here that have experienced your child uh, saying something like mama or papa or dada, it's pretty amazing, isn't it? And what's funny about that is they never really use uh, words that require teeth like Tata, or you know, like, it's just you know, gummy mouth. Or what can they say? And it's never really you know, two different s- syllables like grandpa. It's just mama or dada or abba. That's what this word is. It's the universal language of a completely dependent child. Now, when does this word begin to fade out of our children's lives? When they begin to dwindle on their dependence of us. And maybe even a little bit of their trust. You know, they begin to learn, you know, what, two, three, four. Like, I might know as much as mom and dad. You know, they, they begin to do this, right? Like, like my kids don't come up to me and go, mom, dad, dad anymore. They don't, they don't do that, right? Because they begin to develop some independence. But the use of this here is not to reflect your immaturity or infancy of faith. This word is actually used to describe your maturity. That's what it does. A child that uses this term, Abba, uses it in a state where they see their parent as the sole provider of everything they would ever need, anything they would ever need. This is not like my children who, you know, in Meyer, when we go to the checkout line, will throw their body on the ground to get like a Reese cup. You know, that's not what Abba crying out is. It's not what that is. Anybody else have kids that do that, right? Like, please, can I have something? Like they've never got anything in their life. You know, got a cart full of stuff for them. You know, it's like, um, that's not the cry. This is the cry of a child begging, not for something from you, but for what? The cry for you. This is the cry of a child that's saying, I don't just want candy from my mom and dad, or I just don't want, I want mom. I want dad. Are you getting it? This is the cry that says, I don't need you to just to fix something or give me something. I need you. This is the progression of maturity. That the Spirit has to lead you into war against your sin. And in the presence of your sin, you will choose either faith in the fatherhood of God or fear that it becomes slavery. And if you choose the fatherhood of God, you begin to cry out to him saying, I don't need you just to tweak my life a little bit or give me something else or send me a little bit of money. I need you. It's you that I need. It's you that I want. Crying out for Abba is not you begging God to give you what you want. Oh, our prayer life looks like that so much. 
It's crying out for God to give you himself, more of him. And if you'll fight Satan with the truth of your status that you are God's child all the way to this stage of maturity, you'll begin to see your sin start to be eliminated. You see, the root of all sin, the root of all your sin right now, all of it, whether it's fear or doubt or mistrust or anger or bitterness, the root of all your fear, deceit, evil, envy, all of that, is you asking something other than God to be God for you. That's the root of all your sin. If you struggle with bitterness, why can't you let go of something? Because that thing that has been taken from you or that way that you've been wronged was the most important thing to you, more important than God. Therefore, you hold on to your bitterness and can't let it go. God's not enough. Do you see you're asking something to be God and not God? The reason we um, hoard our money and are greedy is because we don't trust that God will provide. And we have to do it ourselves. We're asking things to be God and not God to be God. And that's the root of all your sin. And if you'll drill down to this level where you cry out not for God to give you things, but for God to give you himself, the assurance of your status will be confirmed. And the roots of your sin will begin to be uprooted little by little. Let me give you one last point. It's kind of weird that he brings in suffering here. So I'm skipping the beginning of verse 17, which we'll talk about later. That you are, because of your status as a child of God, an heir of God and a joint heir with Jesus or an heir with Christ. That's the great hope that's coming. We'll talk about next week. But randomly, he inserts this. The only condition in this sentence, provided or if, the end of verse 17, we suffer with him. We suffer with him. How does suffering fit into this? If we're children of the king, we're not supposed to suffer, right? We're supposed to have servants that suffer for us and, you know, file our fingernails and peel our grapes and bring us food. We're supposed to have servants, right? We're, we're, we're children of the king. Why would we suffer? Why would we suffer? Well, first of all, suffering is a result of evil. Bottom line. And we live in an evil world in this day. And there will be a world where there is no suffering. But you and I live in an evil world and you and I participate in that evil. Therefore, we experience suffering both justly because we deserve it sometimes and unjustly because there are sinful people who sin against us in this world. We experience suffering. However, in this text, suffering is not God's payback to us because we've sinned, nor is it his payment he requires of you to obtain glory someday. He's not saying, suffer a little bit, let me see some skin in this game, and then I'll give you glory. It's not a trade-off. Suffering is God's preparation of you for glory. Let me say suffering is the only way God can get you ready for glory. Suffering is the only way God can prepare you for a world in which we will fully enjoy him as the uppermost joy and not take his gifts and make them God. Not take food or drink or relationships or people and make them God. We won't learn how to let go of those things being our God unless we learn how to suffer through that. See, suffering does two things. One, suffering reveals the things in your life that you're asking to be God that cannot be God. Our relationships experience suffering, and when they suffer, they remind us 
That that person is not God. When you suffer, maybe you had a parental situation that wasn't good. When you suffer in that situation, it's not, it's not just complete end of your life. It's revealing to you that there is a parent that's greater than your parents. That you're always supposed to be reaching for, and it's not them. When you suffer in a marital relationship, it's reminding you that there's a spouse that's greater than the spouse that you have. That's supposed to be always fulfilling you. When you suffer in your health, it's reminding you that there's someday going to be a body that will never expire. When you suffer in your wealth or your career, there's reminding you that there's glory that's greater than just glory that's here. You see, what God is doing is breaking our fingers off of the grip of things we think will give us life that can't give us life. How gracious is God to let us suffer? And the second thing he does in suffering is this. Suffering drives us to the one who really can fulfill us. You see, God lets us suffer to break our grip of things that can't save us and ultimately drive us to the one who can. Suffering is the pathway to making the objective realities of God, the truths of God, that he loves us, that he's gracious, that he's merciful. It makes those objective theories subjective realities. When you suffer, you learn that he is merciful. He is gracious when you run to him. How do we know this? Well, it was through suffering that made all this available for us. Our Savior was not, although a king, he was not exempt from suffering. In fact, he was a suffering Savior, a suffering servant. He let down all of his guard. He allowed himself to be um, crucified. He suffered for us. And out of love for God and love for us, Jesus Christ was willing to suffer unjustly so that you and I could be reconciled to the one we've always longed for. You see, what Jesus accomplishes on the cross out of a multitude of things is this. If you'll look at the cross and understand what he suffered for you, he will reorder your priorities of love. You see, right now we've got horizontal priorities with our love. We love our family, maybe our spouse, our children, our friends. We love our job. We love our career. And we love God horizontally. And what the cross does is it takes those things and makes it vertical. That ultimately loving God is what empowers us to love people. What empowers us to love our spouse. What empowers us to love our wife, our, our, our children. But until we get those things in the right priority, we'll constantly be asking things of this world to give us assurance, to give us value, to give us hope. And it's only God and our status as his children that can ever give us that. And if you're not his child, we always extend an invitation to you. You can come as we stand and sing.